Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Hi, this is Darren Prince, author of Aiming High. If you want to learn how to elevate your relationships, you should be listening to Build Your Network podcast with my good friend, Travis Chappelle. Welcome back to the show. I believe that who you know is more important than what you know. If you agree, then keep listening for tips on how to cultivate meaningful connections the right way. If you disagree, then tune in anyway to let me prove you wrong with my journey. My name is Travis Chapel, and this is the Build Your Network podcast. Hey there, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode here on Build Your Network. So, Today is just one of those episodes, guys. It's just one of those episodes that was just awesome. And, and I, know, I know I say this kind of stuff a lot, but this one was just a little bit different. I, I did not know what to expect coming into this. And that's typically the case. A lot of these interviews um, that I'm booking now, I don't really know the person until I can actually sit down with them. And I, and I can kind of tell a little bit from some of the research that I do of what type of a person that they are, or else I obviously would not have them on the show if I, <laughs> there was a chance that they were uh, you know, a total a-hole. But um, this guy was uh, just surprising to me how how just genuine and open and uh, just just a spirit of just loving gratitude that he came across with was um, was totally overwhelming and, and completely energetic and um, uh, really contagious to be honest. And that guy, uh, we just had a fantastic conversation. This got into so many things. There's a couple parts where he got emotional, which always gets me emotional. And so I really think you're going to enjoy this interview. It's with Darren Prince. Darren is a sports and celebrity 
agent who grew up in New Jersey. He started a mail order company selling baseball cards at the age of 14. When the rest of us were just freshmen in high school worried about, you know, sports and girls and school and all that kind of stuff, he started a company selling baseball cards, which what you you know, hearing that you're just like, okay, well, yeah, he's a kid, he sells baseball cards, you know, what would you make a 1000 bucks that summer, you know, um, but uh, he started traveling across the country and doing trade shows. Um, and at the age of 20, he sold that company for a million dollars at 20 years old. And this was back in the 80s, guys. So this is not during the, you know, social media boom, where it's a lot easier to make that kind of money when you're that young. 20 years old, sold this company for a million dollars, and then he formed Prince of Cards, which became an industry leader in private autograph signings for sports and celebrity memorabilia with athletes and celebrities. So he goes and basically creates this entire new industry. There wasn't a lot of this stuff happening back then, so he creates this thing and then fills it up with some of the world's most well-known athletes and celebrities, uh, first of which, by the way, was Muhammad Ali, the Muhammad Ali, yes. And, and then in 95, he started a new venture called Prince Marketing Group, which represents athletes and celebrities for marketing deals consisting of endorsements, licensing, TV, movie, book deals, um, autograph signings, appearances, all of the above. Just to give you guys an idea, he manages some of the top people in the world like Magic Johnson, Charlie Sheen, uh, Dr. Drew Pinsky, um, uh, he's got, he knows, you know, uh, or Denise Richards would be in that group, Hulk Hogan, uh, Evil Knievel, Dennis Rodman, just literally some of the best people. I um, mean, look at some of just the, um, the endorsements on the back of his book is, is insane. Just the who's who really Mark Cuban's on there. Um, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, wrote some stuff for about his book. Man, there's just so many people on here that you're just like, oh my gosh, how does <laughs> he you know all these people? And, uh, so obviously this being the Bilge Network podcast, this ended up being a fantastic conversation about relationships and networking. But if you ask Darren, his biggest and most important accomplishment, he would tell you it's being a recovering addict, having celebrated 10 years sober and is a public recovery advocate and speaker who has appeared on Dr. Oz. Um, and then in uh, 2018, he wrote a book called Aiming High, and it's his memoir. Um, it quickly became an international bestseller in four countries and on October 2018, made it to the Amazon number one new release list. And so this is an amazing book, Aiming High. Um, it's got all the awesome stories in it about the, you know, uh, extravagant lifestyle that he was living by hanging out with these people and making the money that he was as young as he was got all the good stuff but it also has the dark side of his opiate addiction and what he suffered from for uh, decades of his life and now he is in recovery from and like I said ha sitting down and having this conversation with him was a big blessing in my life because the the, the energy was so contagious guys I'm telling you um, this is a guy that that is a really 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 genuine person he was totally engaged even with everybody that he was um, talking like he literally just got off of phone call before he walked in with Carmen Electra dealing with something um, or helping her with something out. Uh, and it was just, then he sits down with me. But when he sat down with me, it was, he was all, all engaged in our conversation. And um, man, I just respect, I respect the hell out of people like that who have every reason in the world that most people would think that would give them, if anybody has the right to, you know, be, be all busy and, uh, and, and kind of write you off, it would be somebody like him. But, uh, I always appreciate when people like him are just regular people trying to have a good conversation and make a difference in the world. Um, so we talk about just so a variety of different things, but, uh, the story of Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier, um, uh, squashing everything that was happening in between them. Like you guys just, you, you have to hear this story. Trust me. Um, it gets him emotional. It gets me emotional. Um, but it's just this crazy, iconic, 
cultural moment. That was wasn't wasn't just a sports thing. It was cultural across the entire world, and um, and and he got to kind of orchestrate that and be a part of it, which was pretty awesome. Um, and then how he made four hundred thousand dollars a year in high school in the nineteen eighties, and then sold that company for a million bucks. That's just a crazy. That's just to me uh, is the the ultimate entrepreneur right there. Um, and then also we talk about how crucial his relationship with Magic Johnson was to his career. And I bet you guys can guess uh, what his answer was to the who you know or what you know question. In fact, I didn't even have to ask the question. He just said it. <laughs> so uh, you're definitely going to want to pay attention to this interview. So many amazing things in here. Uh, but first, really quickly before we get into that, if you are somebody that is looking to start a podcast, okay, you run a seven-figure business or a high six-figure business, and you are looking to add more revenue to your in, to your uh, uh, to your business this year, um, increase your credibility or authority um, in your space or your niche. If you want more book deals or speaking engagements, and uh, you think podcasting is going to be the thing that be the thing to help you get there, uh, reach out to me because I have a couple spots open in, in my coaching program right now. Um, just head over to travischapel.com/coaching, travischapel c h a p p e l l dot com slash coaching uh, to throw in a quick application and then we'll chat on the phone. There's no obligation there. It doesn't cost anything to do any of that. So if you're thinking about this 1%, at least just go fill out that form and chat with me because, you know, worst case scenario, we just get to know each other and have a good conversation. So um, pretty good worst case scenario there. Head over to travischapel.com slash coaching and I will chat with you really soon. And now here is my conversation with Darren Prince. Darren, thanks so much for joining me on the show today, man. Fantastic, fantastic time having you in here. Can't wait to jump into some stuff. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to it. Yes, sir, of course. So, man, so many things. We're going to talk more about this book, but before we get too you know, far into the conversation, I want to highlight this for a second, make sure everybody listening or watching um, knows about it. So, Aiming High, How a Prominent Sports and Celebrity Agent Hit Bottom at the Top. Um, it is a bestseller now that uh, you came out with, and um, I just want to shout that out here at the beginning so that everybody can go jump on that before we get into the rest of the interview. So let's talk about how this book came about, and uh, back very, very, very beginning here, and uh, talk about the entrepreneurial journey that you've been on. Uh, do you believe, Darren, that entrepreneurship is something that's born, or do you think it can be taught? Because it seemed like you just had that, whatever it was. I think it's a little bit of both. I wasn't the best student. Okay. Like my friend Gary, he talks about it all the time. Yeah. School wasn't for me. Mm -hmm. And my dad found something special in me when it came to numbers. I was a statistical genius looking at baseball cards and I mm -hmm. never got his batting average and RBIs and home runs and uh, minor leagues, you know, runs batted in, all that stuff. Was that and numbers in general or yeah, just numbers in general? Okay. And I was obsessed with collecting baseball cards as a kid. Okay. And I was challenged uh, in my intro to business class by a teacher, Elliot Lovey, who I'm still close to this day. He wanted everybody to go home and create this fantasy business. And I created this baseball card company in my mind. Talk about a fantasy business. Which actually business. I had come to no, fruition. And that was intro to business in high school? In high school, 14 okay. years old. 14 years old. So 14 years old, you get this, you weren't even thinking about turning it into a real business until no. you had this class. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you say you have a good relationship with him now. Is, what was, what's the dialogue between you and him now, like him being able to see where you've gone in your career? He said he always knew something was special mm -hmm. about me, that I lacked a lot of self-confidence, a lot of self-worth. I acted like I never fit in, mm -hmm. but when he had me one-on-one, -on -one, he said I just saw something in your eyes that were, that were magical, that was different, that mm -hmm. you were going to be a game changer in everything that you ever did. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. 
we are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a, a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at Indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to Indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. So talk to me ins and outs of the baseball card business. Well, what, what, did, what did you actually do? How did it you was an it? amazing time in my life, man. I was a superstar at the top of an industry that just came out of nowhere. And having no idea how to handle it as a teenager, there was me, this guy, Alan Rosen, Mr. Man, who was the most iconic name in the industry. And we had celebrities, rock stars, I mean, everybody coming to collect these rare vintage cards because the That's investment great. potential was tremendous. And, you know, I just started going to trade shows and I would, I would buy a Mickey Mantle rookie for... $5,000 because I knew that week I had an investor on Wall Street that was paying me 10 That's So I was just buying, flipping, and buying, you're flipping. 14, 15. Yeah, by the time I was 16 years old, I think I was probably making about 400000 a year. How did you stay at all engaged in school? It was tough. I had a couple of my big uh, Italian friends that I would pay in between class. I was the only guy I knew that had a cell phone. The company was called Bell Atlantic back then. Had this big metal aluminum weight on the bottom with a rubber antenna, and it was three dollars a minute to use the phone. My dad flipped when he saw the first bill, but then he smiled when he saw how much money I made yeah. that month to <laughs> understand that I could afford it. And so these guys would stand in front of my locker in between class. It was crazy. It'd be like I'd be calling on John Smith, so and so, Smith Barney. Well, these are Fargo, friends of I yours. I want this card. I want that card. And it was in between class. I'd be grabbing my phone out of my locker, wow. and um, you know, but. When I look back at that time, you know, you hear about all the success that I could talk about, but I just never felt worthy of it at the same time. Yeah. You know, it was like everybody wanted to, like, you see what Darren's doing? You see what, but, yeah. you know, I just, I just never felt like... Just I imposter just, syndrome creeping up? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you think that there's a real way to deal with that? And I feel like there's, there's so much talk about it, especially, I don't know what it is nowadays, I guess, I guess just the internet's around, so more people know that it's a term. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but when you're 15, 16 years old, you 
don't really know all the terms or what exists out there. You just have this feeling, this inner feeling of I'm not good enough. And even though it appears externally that everything's going okay, mm-hmm. internally something's not going right. I, you know, I had that learning disability mm-hmm. that I was told uh, I was classified with as a young kid. Okay. And I think it was always in my soul, in my gut. And uh, from not speaking up, I felt, you know, let me just show the world that I could do this and I can do that. And, um, but it wasn't authentic. You know, mm-hmm. I was always looking for an outside fix that was an inside job. And when I speak to high school kids, they're my favorite audience out of any because I tell them, don't be Darren Prince. Mm-hmm. Speak up. Don't put a substance in your system just to fit in. Speak up right now. Guidance counselor, teacher, friend, you know, family member mm-hmm. because you'll save yourself years of hell. What? What besides that would you tell yourself as a 15-year-old kid? Um, you know, you are enough. Because I see the way I'm treated in the world today. Mm. And I don't need to tell people how great I am. I don't need to tell people I'm the best. I don't need to tell my celebrities or friends or anybody who I'm hanging out with who I am. Because I think uh, in 50 years young, the legacy I've created for myself by being true to who I am has... Uh, Know, become reality. You know, I think people that have to talk too much about themselves, they're not that exact person. You so, know? Yeah, so how, how does like a 15, 16 year old who doesn't know the future, right? Like, so here right now, you can easily say, hey, it's worth it, right? Mm-hmm. But as you're, if you're 15, 16, you don't know what the future holds for you and you're still in that mindset of, I'm, you know, I have this disability or I have this other obstacle that's going to keep me from being this version of myself that I ultimately want to be. Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you deal with, how do you deal with that when you're that young and still be able to come out of it without going down other paths like you did in terms of like going down and, you know, trying to fix that problem with external substances? I was at the White House on October 24th of 2018 when President Trump signed the historic $6 billion opiate epidemic bill. So it's funny you bring that up. I pulled Kellyanne Conway aside and Governor Christie. Uh, my book just became a bestseller then, and she thanked me for my service in writing it. And I said, do you want to change the trajectory of all these high school kids across America? I'm going to give you one thing that's going to change addiction, mental illness, self-esteem, self-worth, self-confidence forever. Start implementing in every high school a class about self-worth, self-esteem. Mm. about being good enough because I don't care if it's the jock if it's the geek if it's the nerd everybody's got something that mm. they're taking out there into the real world uh, because we're not comfortable enough to talk about it I, I can't imagine if I had a class at 15 years old that was about that mm. how everybody all of a sudden becomes one yeah you know and the bullying goes away right. and she's like this is like brilliant you know when I'd like you to come back up here and maybe you know we can talk about this in the new year or so. Wow. It's something I would love to sit down with them about because it's it's that simple of a fix. Yeah, well, it, it normalizes it, yep. right? Because when, especially when you're that young, I, I mean, I say that now, but even as you know, I'm 27, even coming into adult life, it still feels like that. Yep. You know, sometimes like you're yep. the only person that could possibly know what you're going through, yep. and it's just not true. It's just not true. Almost every single human being that you meet, or every single human being that yeah. you meet, has their own internal stuff that was caused by who knows what. You know, society, culture, like what you were saying, people telling you that you were not capable of something when you were that young, and you you believe everything when you're when you're that young. And yeah. there was something like that that just made the conversation okay, yeah. where you don't feel like you're going to get picked on if you tell somebody that you're going through this exactly. thing in your head, yeah. right? So. 
coming out of that, you obviously didn't have that class. So talk to us about the, the drug addiction that started at such a young age from that. So it started at 14 years old in sleepaway camp. I had horrible stomach pains one night, and I told the counselor I had to go to see the nurse. So she gave me this green liquid in a plastic cough syrup cup, and I took it. It was, it was disgusting. Just I gagged. And um, five minutes later, I'm walking across the softball field, and my life changed forever. Every one of those inadequacies and insecurities went away like that, and... Um, yeah, I was on top of the world. I, I, I think about it to this day. It shows me that I'm still such a hardcore junkie because I can get chills thinking about that feeling. Mm. That's how much it changed my life. Yeah. And I got back to the bunk. I was the cool guy, the popular one, the talkative one. The first time Cracking ever jokes, I started... people laughing. And... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was the, you know, I was the popular one. Yeah. There was like 30 teenage girls in the bunk next to me. I could never talk to girls. Yeah. I just walked into the front of the bunk and... They're looking at me, and I said something. I don't know what it was. Everybody's laughing with me, not at me. Yeah. And uh, I went to bed that night thinking nothing of it. The next day, I did all my activities. That next night, I'm lying in the bunk with no stomach pain, and I'm looking up at the sky and like just daydreaming. I was like, oh, my God, that feeling was amazing last night. How do I get more of it? And mm. I learned to lie, con, cheat right then in that moment. I went over the couch for healed over. I said, my stomach is killing me. I've got to go back. And did this for three straight weeks every night until my mom and dad came to visitation day and found that I was taking a liquid Demerol. What a horrible counselors and nurses <laughs> keeled over in pain as a, as a teenage they kid from stomach a couple times. Oh, yeah. they did? And, you know, they just said it was nervous anxiety, mm. um, upset stomach, and I guess back then Demerol, you were allowed to give it. That's crazy. Yeah. Just like, here's some Demerol, go to sleep. Mm. <laughs> wow. So, okay, so you leave camp now having experienced this yeah. right which is a, like you said literally a life-altering experience mm -hmm. because up to that point there was never that inner peace yeah. right there was never that like calm that came when you took some liquid magic right yeah. so then you get back you have to get your wisdom teeth pulled yeah. so you go back in mm -hmm. to the doctor and this time they give you something in form of a pill yeah. so can you walk us through then that next part so my mom gives me two of the pills when i got back from uh, the dentist, and I had no idea what it was. I was in pain, and that same feeling came back. Mm. I couldn't understand it. I was like, how could a the green liquid and the white pill have that? Right. But I didn't want to say anything, so I'm lying in bed, I'm calling up my boys, and uh, a couple girls that I was friends with, and the same thing. I'm just diarrhea of the mouth, and talking, 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 and all these amazing ideas that I have for my life, and business, and my goals, and um, three days later, I think the pills were gone. So I only knew one thing to wow. do, and it was that night I went downstairs to my mom holding my cheek and crying. Wow. And what mother wants to see their child suffer? Do, do you remember how long the original prescription was supposed to last you? Uh, it, it lasted as long as it was supposed to, because she oh, okay. wouldn't let me take okay. them on my own. Got it, got it. Yeah. My okay. mom was uh, obviously paranoid at that point because yeah. of the Demerol situation. She knew something was up with me. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, like you said, as a mom, you yeah. don't want to just watch your kid just be in pain all the time and she takes me to the dentist and uh i lied and conned and did everything i needed to do and he gave her another three days so. how 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 long did you have to keep coming up with reasons to be able to go back and get some more painkillers? because i mean you, i mean you're in high school right? yeah so like you, you can't just that only happened once okay but a few months after that i started my business so now it was real dangerous i was making money gotcha so gotcha. I was buying them on the so street. Or, 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 or I was right. paying friends to take them from their parents' medicine cabinet that might have had surgeries, and I was the only one that could afford it. Gotcha, gotcha. So 
coming into that addiction now in hindsight, what would you say to somebody who's facing something like that? If they're, to be clear, they're, they're not yet to the point where you feel like it's a sickness, right? But they're at that very beginning stage and maybe, they, maybe they're not even aware of it. Like what would you say to somebody that's in that position that's just like starting to dabble in these things and, and you know where that path leads? Mm-hmm. What, what would you say to somebody like that? You know, my dad always used to tell me when I was experimenting a lot with drugs and partying, like, why can't you just look in the mirror and feel good enough? Hmm. I never understood what he said, what are you talking about? Of course I feel good enough. I, I, I like taking, I just like the feeling. Yeah. Until I got sober, I didn't realize that it was 100% spot on. Hmm. Because I'm pretty willing to bet this building I live in and most of this city, there ain't no more real person out there than me. Yeah. More authentic, more comfortable in his skin. Yeah. Right now, because I've truly found Darren Prince at 49 years old. Um, and it's, it's just such a gift I can't even explain it to you. How, how, do you, how do you deal with knowing that probably your greatest strength now comes from your greatest weakness before in terms of like regret when you look back is it like man i regret doing that from day one like if i could go back i would change it 100 percent, or would you change it because that's kind of what's turned you into being the person that you are i I wouldn't change a thing i put a post up the other day on instagram and i got a ton of inboxes that was just about that i don't regret a single thing it worked out perfectly Mm. the exact way god wanted it to work out Because like I said, at 49 and I'll be 50 in five weeks, most people I know can't say what I can tell you about myself, that I can look in the mirror and love everything about myself and who I'm trying to be, who I evolve to be. Mm-hmm. When I make mistakes, it's a better quality of a mistake. Um, I try to grow, I change, try to change behavioral patterns. Um, you know, if I need to, um, you know, just very accountable. I talk about the five A's, attitude adjustment, accountability, action and acceptance and I put all five of those together Mm. and um, it's just been amazing. So let's move into more of the professional career here. So despite the drug abuse in the background, Mm. you seem to be doing pretty well for yourself, right? Mm -hmm. So making $400,000 as a sophomore or junior in high school, whatever you were, um, is obviously a fairly decent start to a good financial journey ahead of you. Um, you said your dad was a business person, mm-hmm. um, so he saw something that was happening there, right? Mm-hmm. Like he was he was smart enough to be able to look at what you were doing and be like, oh, okay, this this is like real money. Because I, yeah. I, I assume I assume that industry back then would be kind of like what social media and online marketing and is sneakerheads. Yeah, okay, sneaker. yeah, yeah. So where where like parents are just like. I don't know what he's doing, but he's making, he's making money. money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know exactly how, but yeah. somehow it's coming in. Yeah. So, um, talk to me about the first those first like profits that you started making, like the big ones where you're like, okay, this is there, there's for sure something here. You know, I I, I don't want to be completely honest with them because holding that type of cash as a 18, 19 year old, and look, I, I was a late bloomer with the women, and I remember you know just going out and being the guy everybody wanted to hang with and having you no. Know, thousands of dollars on me with my boys and it was a great feeling yeah you know i thought it was a real feeling yeah but you know, a lot of it was you know fake so but this I, was pre-age 21 yeah. right so when you say going out you mean you like, we, we were able to get we were able to get in clubs in new york city okay. by the time we were 19 and 20 okay yeah with fake ids and whatnot and obviously the guy everybody went to hang out with and um so i took full advantage of it yeah and um which what young kid wouldn't exactly right? yeah exactly and um you know, I was honest to a degree. You know, my dad and my uncle back then knew that there's some real money coming and they wanted to make sure I paid taxes and did everything mm-hmm. I had to do the right way so there wasn't a problem, which I did. Yeah. Um, but a lot of it, like I said, but there was, you know, 
that uh, imposter syndrome. I needed it. I, want, I wanted all that cash in my pocket. I wanted to be the first one. I had a credit card at a certain age and be able to slap it down and know that it's going to go through. Right, you know? right. So where along this journey, what age um, did you start doing these memorabilia autograph signings? That was at 20. I sold the okay. baseball card company. Oh, you sold it? You I actually had it. an exit? I sold this on my mailing list, whatever assets were left as far as the collection for a million dollars. Okay. And uh, jumped right into the sports and entertainment memorabilia industry. And okay. I did that for about four and a half, five years. And that industry was great because it allowed me to meet all these superstars mm-hmm. that eventually formed those relationships. Yeah. Then the next step was print marketing. So ins and outs of that business, just real quick, just for some context, what exactly, like I, I say, you know, memorabilia and autograph yeah. signing, what, what exactly did you do and how, how We would pay know? different athletes and celebrities, Muhammad Ali, Magic Johnson, Pamela Anderson, they would sit in a hotel room for a couple hours, autograph hundreds or thousands of items, and they'd be contracted to be paid a certain amount of money, and that was it. And w- was this something that they were already doing and they just need somebody to... No, we, we actually... I'd like to think back then we almost created an industry in a way and these celebrities found it like the easiest money ever. Sometimes they would keep it for themselves. Sometimes they would donate it to their favorite charity and we would go out and market the product to different vendors, uh, companies, uh, memorabilia stores. And who who was the first like bigger name that you Muhammad Ali. Okay. I'm up for the biggest. And how, 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 how do you land that as a 20 year old? My friend, uh, Jeff Hamilton, a revered leather jacket designer was with him on Christmas was good friends with the guy, Harlan Warner, who I was also with on Christmas. And and how did you meet Jeff? I I, I met Jeff at the Super Bowl in two, in 1992 in Minneapolis. I was sitting front row on the 50 yard line. He was two rows behind me and he just looked like a rock star. He had these, (laughs) outrageous looking jackets and I walked over to him and told that was, him what business. That was your Dallas one, right? That was uh, that was the Redskins Buffalo Bills. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. gotcha. Um, and uh, we exchanged numbers. We formed a friendship. I went out to see him. I actually, I'll never forget this. I, my, my ex-girlfriend and I broke up. We, we were both devastated. It was like, I was 21 or 22. Uh-huh. And he's like, come out here. Come come spend the weekend with me. He goes, don't, don't sit at home and be depressed. And uh, so you, had I not gone to LA, this is the crazy thing, Prince Market Group won't exist to this day. That's so Because great. we hung out at his office, and that's when Harlan Warner walked in, mm. who was Muhammad's agent. Gotcha. So I remembered a year later, and I wanted to get to the memorabilia business. I called him up, and I'm like, remember that guy, Harlan, that I met? Gotcha. How do I get in touch with him to do a signing with Muhammad Ali? Okay, so that business, you were still doing baseball cards baseball. at that time. Yep. So you see this guy, and you're like, he seems like he knows what he's doing. Yep. So you go create a friendship. Yeah. Just randomly fly out to LA because you're going through something with a bad breakup. Yeah. It's uh, like against hustle. Deepest irony. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, to hell with the hustle is definitely something that I can get on board with. Uh, I know that there's a lot of people, especially in my space, in the entrepreneurial yes. um, type space, there's yes. a lot of people preaching hustle all the time. Yeah. I don't necessarily like have a problem with working hard because yes. uh, that's obviously part of the process. 100%. Um, but I think that having a self-awareness about what life really is about mm-hmm. is, uh, is super important. So um, can you kind of talk to me about like the origin of this book and, yeah. you know, let's give me just one or two key principles that you hope people will take away from it. Totally. Well, I mean, I think it, it, basically it started from the, the, not only me feeling it in my own life, but then like what you were saying, there's a, there's like a trend out there that's starting to just get kind of annoying. You know what totally. I mean? Like it's not like, and you nailed it. Like working hard is amazing. Yeah. Working hard is necessary. Uh, we need to work am, am, with ambition. We need to work, uh, you know, loving other people and doing it well and with ethics and all that stuff and integrity. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's this like extra layer that's like, I, I kind of, uh, hu- uh, hustle's a good kind of uh, catch-all, but also another one that I think it was like the life hack culture. Mm-hmm. You know, you just like, we're so obsessed with like life hacking our life, right? Mm-hmm. Just like 
the shortcut and do this and you'll do this and make sure you have the MCT oil and the bulletproof coffee and that. And, and I take that, by the way, and it gives me brain energy. I love it. Yeah. But like, at what point is enough enough? Meaning like how many, like my, my question we have to ask is, have we ever come back around to look at the data? You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, like okay, we, we have every little life hack that we've almost had in human, like, like someone from 1500 would just be like blown away at how many little things we can do to our life. Right. And so I just kind of say like, are we, have we reached, like, should we, we should have reached perfection by now, basically. Yeah. If there's so many life hacks, we should have kind of reached the logical conclusion, but we haven't, which kind of shows you it's a little false bill of goods, you mm -hmm. know, that at some level we're chasing something that can't be grabbed, can't be achieved. Mm -hmm. um, and what is it there? And so there's that. And then, yeah, the book really gets at the spirit of like, um, man, I think it was Derek Thompson who in the Atlantic, he has just a brilliant, brilliant article called The Religious Religion of Workism. And he's, you know, non like he's a non-religious person. He's just kind of using this language of like we've almost made work a religion. Yeah. Right? And he and he really gets into some crazy stats and data in there of like how this is not how it's ever been um, and what it's doing to us. And he has this cool phrase in there where he goes, you know, for all of human history, work was always about making things. But for the last 40 or so years, work is now about making us. Hmm. And what he says is we are in a very unique culture where we now, we're the only culture in all of human history where work is now no longer about material production, but it's about identity production. Yeah. It's about literally, we don't even care about our job as much. We care about what the job does for us, like in our soul, yeah. who it's making us, who it's forming us into be, because we have some idealized version that we're trying to push towards. And, and who that, we... Who we who we like want to be perceived as yes. by other people. Yes, and it's, so then that that is, and that's an identity. It's yeah. it's who am I? Yeah. We're trying to answer the question who am I through work, and I just think that's a very 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 bad thing to do. It's dangerous. It right? is really dangerous, and too much pressure, right? Mm -hmm. Like you know, work is when it's about making things. That's great. Make things. Honor those things. Honor that job. Be the best you can at that job. But when it's about making us, then that becomes corrosive and toxic on your soul. Yeah, you know, uh, Simon Sinek recently wrote a book. Love him, by the way. The Infinite Game. Yeah, and he talks about that. How how we're playing this we're playing this game of life like it's a like it's a finite game like yes. uh, like our, our career is a finite thing yeah. and it's not it's not a finite game there, there is no winner or loser clear yeah. rules that are yeah. done and, and that's the same thing that you were just talking about yeah. is that we're we're trying to we're trying to get other people to perceive us to be a certain way mm. based on what we think is going to elevate our status in yes. their eyes when there's no like specified rules for what matters yes. right because some people might be like oh your salary matters other yes. people might be like oh your job title matters mm -hmm. oh your impact matters so we're like we're trying to build this life that impresses all these other people without even having a tool yeah. to measure, measure the actual yeah. success. Totally. Like we, we don't know what that means. We're just like totally. all competing in this thing. We've all picked out our own values that we perceive to be important. Yes. And then that's what we try to portray to other people. So if you view that like, making money is important, yes. then you're going to cast that on me. And because yeah. I don't make as much money as you do, the then you're just going to be like, well, you're down here. I'm up here. Yes. Right? But I might look at you and be like, well, I just, I do more charity work and, yeah, and exactly. that's what matters to me, totally. you know, and, and you're all you care about is money. So mm -hmm. I'm going to elevate my status above you because I'm a better person than you are. Right? Totally. So we all have like these fake things yeah, that we measure life by that yeah. really nobody's ever agreed on. <laughs> totally, <laughs> you know? totally. And I and I love Simon Sinek, by the way. He's one of my favorite. I love him as a thought leader, some of the stuff he's saying. It was actually a geek out moment. He's in his new books in Target, and they put me right next to his in Target. Uh, nice. And I'm just like, yes, I get to be <laughs> yeah. next to him. I'm like, buy his. Associate, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and hopefully buy mine. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I totally agree, man. And I think 
and, and, and Jesus even kind of gets at this a little bit. You know, 2,000 years ago, you have this gospel text of, uh, of, of different pressure groups. You have different religious groups. You have different secular people coming at him with different needs and pressures. Exactly what you said. Like, everyone has different metrics. Mm-hmm. And they're all putting this on Jesus, right, which is fascinating when you open up the gospels. And then clearly there's even a couple stories where that pressure starts to collide. And then Jesus says, no, no, there is a metric. There is one. It's not all the ones you're saying. It's not all of this. It's not all that. And then he basically says, he says, you can sum up the entire law in this. And it's that you will love God and love neighbor. And I'm like, man, that is a good metric, right? Mm -hmm. To love, to love God, the person in whose image you are made in, but then also to love each other. Because when you're loving each other, then you're not getting into those false sense of metrics. Like you said, where I make this, you don't, I do this, you don't. Um, And I think that's just fascinating that in its own way, 2000 years ago, that was the same problem, just in a really recapitulated way. And I love how he answers this. No, no, there is rules, there is things, but it can be summed up in one center. And that's love other people, right? And then love God and, uh, and love your neighbor as yourself. So I think that's huge. Yes. What, what are a couple other things that you talked about in the book? So the book, yeah. So first couple chapters, I would almost call the diagnosis, the problem. Uh, you know, there's already been some people mes- messaging me and uh, laughing that like it's rated, you know, uh, I don't know how to say it. Like it's like, you know, it's kind of, it's when you go to the dentist, it's painful to get the cavity part. And they're always like, oh, that's a little too painful in the first chapters, but hopefully it's the solutions the second half. Right. And because um, we have to, you have to truly know the problem, by the way, to know how to solve it. So I think that's oh. why I'm really uh, trying to put some teeth on those first couple chapters. And I go all the way into like industrial revolution. I go back to the invention of the light bulb. I go back to our invention of time. And all of these things actually are significantly putting us in our moment right now that we don't realize because we're 200 years past it. And when you wake up and you're, you know, and you're an adult, you're like, oh, this just is what it is. But it hasn't always been that way. What are the ramifications of that? So the devil and that, but then the whole rest of the book is kind of a solution. Every single chapter, I think the last five or six is what I try to argue for uh, five or six practices, I call them. That if you can institute those, they're, they're really, really good acts of resistance against the problem. You know what I mean? Okay. So like uh, things like silence, things like honoring a true Sabbath, like a true day of rest, like turn off your phone, stop working, um, uh, you know, which culturally, religiously or not, America used to do. 50 years ago, you try to go find something open on Sunday, good luck, mm. right? Yeah. Whether you're a Christian or not, that's just that we, we understood that you need to shut down. Right. Um, and so, yeah, rest, Sabbath. I even talk, there's a whole chapter on obscurity on there, like if you, especially with people with platforms, you know, like us and stuff like that, we need to be making a concerted effort to like hide sometimes. Mm. And that's a weird way to put it, but we do. Like we do not need to be out in front. We do not always need to be seen. We do not always need to be known because that does something to our soul where you become this cropped, edited version of yourself that's not actually a true, robust human image bearer that you are. Yeah, totally. I've been in that position before where like you're almost selecting mm-hmm. daily activities based on like what's going to look best on your Instagram. Totally. Or whatever. Yes. You know, like, what, what do my followers want to do? Like, yes. How about that, what do I want to do today? Exactly. <laughs> and I think that's a really good point because there's a tension there too because I think it's totally fine and fair to share our days, to say where we went to for fun and all that yeah, stuff. Totally. But here, that is the, the corrosive one is when you start actually crafting your days backwards, mm. meaning, I, meaning what do I want to share then I'm going to go do that. That's different than I went and did something and I'm going to share it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and I think there's actually levels of both of those where sometimes just turn your phone off, phone off anyways, don't share. But the other one you said is even worse of like, yeah, we, <laughs> but we don't realize we do it because the more you do it, you start to do it more, right? right. You start yeah, to it's... literally craft activities based on how Instagrammable they are and that's just a weird place to get at. Yeah, just the self-perpetuating yeah. mm-hmm. cycle that yeah, just drains your soul too. Totally. You, know, you don't, like you said, you don't realize it until yes. like a few months later you wake up and yeah. you realize you're not doing anything. Well, my, well and here's what it does. It dehumanizes and also completely devalues the entire experience in a way where it becomes more commodified. So we live in Maui, <clears throat> Hawaii, and I see this all the time and I crack up, but it's also really sad where like literally it's kind of that classic, you know, Instagram husband, Instagram wife thing where like we'll be walking 
I see it almost every single day, and then people just want that classic Maui picture, oh, yeah. right? Just like they're on the beach, and and literally, I've seen so many times where like this girl's in her bathing suit or whatever, and you can tell they just got to the beach. She gives the phone to the husband. She goes and walks to the edge of the beach and kind of does a pose or a strike yeah. or whatever, takes the picture, and then they leave. And then they bounce. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm literally like, and I'm, I'm not even, I'm not even, I've probably seen that over a hundred times. Yeah. Where the end, so, and then now think about all the way through. Okay, so then, you know, you're her friend and you get on Instagram a couple days later and you see this picture. It looks like they had an amazing time on the beach in Maui. Right. No, they didn't. Right. They, did, they literally didn't even spend five seconds on the beach. Yeah. They didn't swim. They didn't talk. They didn't hang out. Yeah. They, it was literally a manufactured moment. And it's just so weird, right? Like to like see the picture, but then also see how that picture was got, you know? Right. And so, yeah, but we do that more than we think. Yeah, what do you think that does for uh, culture in terms of like, I, I, we, we just had our first uh, kid. Uh, yeah. He's about six months old now. Congrats. Yeah, thank What's you. What's his name? That. Cameron. Cameron, cool. Yeah, so a lot of this stuff is now in my mind. 100%. And it was not before. Yes. Um, so what, what do you think that does for culture in terms of kids' self-esteem? Like mm. Not necessarily like I'm like I'm a grown adult, totally. right? So we can handle when Instagram more. came out, yeah. I was I think a freshman in college, totally. You know, so like by the time it was there, it, my feelings weren't as yeah. attached it's to it. It's gonna be native and, to them, natural to them. Yeah, as a kid, like you, if you grow up with that, and oh, yeah. you're seeing that kind of stuff. You know, well they they're here. You're you're seeing everybody's highlight reel yes. and not seeing any of their failures, and you're comparing your failures to totally. their like mountaintops. Totally. What does that do? Oh, uh, there's so many different ways I, I like to answer that one. I think one what I would say is yeah, what it first does is it just commodifies all of our experiences that shouldn't be, like human experiences can't be measured or distilled in a laboratory, but we're kind of doing a pseudo version of that when we do this. It's like we want to make it transactional, make it commodified. So that's the first thing I would say. Second thing is, yeah, I'm going to get this stat wrong because I just read it, but it was something to the effect of like, I just read it the other day where it's like (laughs) your anxiety and your depression like dissipates by like 50% if like in people that they measured turning their phone off for a week or something like that. You know what I mean? Like Mm, they basically just said, get away from your phone and see if that actually changes your mental health. And lo and behold, it changes your mental health, right? Mm. It's literally, and mental health is serious and is internal. And there's ones that's way more chronic and way more serious. So it sometimes can't be solved by turning off your phone. But there's a lot on like this low grade level that I think 100% can. it has to be, right? Yes. I mean, the U.S. is the most culturally advanced country, arguably, in totally. the world, right? But we're also the leader in mental health yes, illnesses. Yes, exactly. Like we are the leader in anxiety, depression, exactly. suicide, all exactly. those things. It's because we as humans, like, look for problems. Totally. We have to have problems. Totally. So when our problem is no longer where am I going to get my next meal, Yes. then we start manufacturing all these other problems. 100%. Like, I posted this picture, yes. and I only got 12 likes, and last yeah. week we I almost, got 35. Yeah, we almost, like, have – it's exactly right. We have too much time on our hands to now make problems out of things that are kind of, like, such – ridiculous problems right. Right? instead of driving we're in the back of an uber yes right? like, exactly instead of driving to get something to eat exactly you get it delivered exactly right. yeah one thing right. i would say that is and but then back to your point about uh your son but then also just coming up in the next generation of social media and like lo- comparing failures to your best there's a couple analogies that help me or one that specifically and i think one thing is we need to do is like we need to not get upset at the people that do share the highlight reel because that's like a normal part of life, right? Yeah. I think sometimes we go one way or the other. We just get like, oh, you're only sharing your highlights because there's a weird kickback in culture that's the opposite right now. So we were like, oh, you only share your highlights. You only share the good stuff. And it's like, well, I'm not going to show myself like barfing at the, in the toilet. But there's a weird culture right now that's trying to push that back. That's totally yeah. like, And it's totally the be vulnerable, be transparent, you know, like yeah. just say everything that's wrong with your marriage and your life. It's like, no, don't take that to the internet. That doesn't belong there, yeah. right? And so I think that's just as wrong. And I, yeah. so I think there's these two sides right now of like when you craft and manufacture it, that's wrong. When you're um, 
But then when you're also saying like, you know, be vulnerable, be vulnerable, be vulnerable online, I think that's wrong too, right? Because there's a, that, that's, that's not that space. And another way to think about it is, I think it's really helpful to think of social media like a family photo book, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Okay, so if you go into someone's family, uh, someone's living room, they usually have a family photo book. Now, if you pick up that family photo book, it's probably just highlights, right? right? And there's nothing wrong with that, mm-hmm. right? There's nothing wrong with having a book that represents your family's highlights. There's no one, you know, grandma drunk or someone throwing up, like it's not in there. Right. Um, why? Because there's something about narratives, too, that I think we're narrative creatures. We like to remember certain narratives, and it's okay to have the highlights. Where, that, where the family photo book gets problematic, or where we would make it problematic, is what if actually, because back to that first of all, you go in the house, you look at the family photo book, you learn the family, that's so cool, you look at it maybe in six months. Where the photo book would be really problematic is if you live in a home where you wake up and you pick up the photo book and you just read it every single day, and then five minutes later, you go back to it. And then you, you bite something and f- go back to it. You eat something, you go back to it. You drink some coffee, you go back to it. Then you would start saying like, oh yeah, that person is probably getting a really, really, really seriously distorted view of what they think that family's narrative is. Mm -hmm. But is the problem the family's narrative? No. The problem is they shouldn't be looking at a photo book seven hours a day. Right. Right? So then it's kind of on the consumer side right there. It turns into this internal game of then like, Man, today sucks. Yes. Right? Remember this day? Yeah, you're like, we that were, was Disneyland. We were in, yeah, in, exactly. in Maui. Yes. And we, we were on the beach. 100%. And we took that picture. You yeah. Know? But and if, now I'm just sitting in my living room. Yes. Yeah. So, so I think that, because I don't, that's a, I think it's a really helpful analogy because we do these weird one or the others. Well, that one kind of answers both, right? Of like, it's okay to share the highlights, but be honest. You're not manufacturing pictures. You're not just going to Disneyland for the picture. Right. You went to Disneyland and you took a picture. So that's fair. But then on the second one, it's like, yeah, we have to also really reckon with like, it's usually, not always, usually sometimes the, the person who's holding the phone, it's, it's, it's there, what it is, it's like we've been looking at the photo book too much. Yeah. So put it down and go do real life. Right. So what's your recommendation for like families with kids and things that mm. where the kids maybe just are always on their phone? Or maybe maybe the, maybe the parents just didn't even realize. That. I, I, I'm, I feel the worst for parents that like this happened too. Yes. Right? Like after my generation, maybe another seven or eight years, like the kids that were... Or it's right in the middle still. Seven or yeah, eight we haven't years thought about it a ton yet. Like, they got yeah, the devices. Exactly. Like yeah. those parents just More got like the like guinea pig experiment. <laughs> yeah. So, no, it's so what do you recommend yeah. now for somebody that's like, okay, now that we got my bearings here, totally. what do I do with my family to make sure that my kids aren't like putting their entire self-worth totally. into this little device? Yeah, I think one thing that I talk about, I don't know if I talk about in the book, but it certainly relates to the book, but we have in our own family, as we call it, my last name is Bethke, so we call it the Bethke Tech Manifesto. And it's kind of this fun little play, but like we, be, we believe that as a family, we need to have like a manifesto, like that kind of spirit of like how we are going to engage with devices, hmm. technology, and this current iteration and world we're in with social media. And if we don't, we lose. You know what I mean? And what I mean by that is, like, I don't think we've ever reckoned with the fact that this is the most concentrated power has ever been in all of human history, right? There's probably 100, maybe only 50 men, probably, maybe a few women in Silicon Valley that have the power and are 100% shaping all of what we believe in our culture for about 2 or 3 billion people in regards to technology, devices, and social media. That's a scary amount of disproportional power. Mm-hmm. Like maybe you could argue tobacco's been in that realm. Maybe you could argue, argue fossil fuels and oil's been in that realm, but I don't think it's still that disproportionate. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's because it's combining tech and media. 100%. Like the other big tech companies. Totally. Or the other big, you know, giant conglomerates totally. didn't also have the power to distribute content. Exactly. That's they a good way to, to put it. Yes. Elsewhere. And so that concentration of power on its face is already terrifying. Uh, Two, 
those people have an agenda. And I don't mean like crazy evil, like their businesses, they need to return money to their shareholders. It's very simple, right? And because of that, they're going to make a lot of decisions that allow, that make us behave. Like we're the product, we're not the consumer, right? Humans in this world are the product in the social media realm. If you're not paying for something, you're the product, right? Not the thing you're using. Mm-hmm. Uh, your eyes are being sold, your data is being sold, your brain's being sold, your behavior's being sold. So I think that's really important because then what you realize is like, okay, they're not wrong for that. They are a business. They need to return profit to their shoulders. Hopefully they do it ethically. Sometimes they don't. Um, but they have an agenda and they are going to 100% shape everything to fit that agenda. They're going to make things certain colors so we behave in a certain way. Mm-hmm. They're going to make them refresh in a certain way. They're going to make them look a certain way. They're going to make them cost a certain way. They're going to make you behave a certain Like everything, right? They spend billions of dollars to get us to behave a certain way. Right. So the whole point of me is like, okay, if you don't have... If you don't have a competing force on that, you automatically lose. Mm. Like you lose, right? You, you will be their agenda. You will do what they want, how they want, when they want it, uh, in almost a robotic drone-like state. Because yeah, you're, if you're not purposeful and intentional resisting, about not totally, being that way, totally. you're just going to end up being that Yes, way. and there's some parts of it where it's fine. Like, okay, let that fall through the cracks. That's fine. You know, they want me to do that, I'll do that. Mm. But are you being intentional with it? Mm. Um, and so, yeah, so then we have a family manifesto that's just like, this is what we believe about technology. And it's always, it's malleable. We're always changing it based on us and our kids' ages. And, but yeah, it's got rules in there like, you know, we don't bring phones in the bedroom. Uh, you know, I can't look at the phone for the first hour of the day. We, <clears throat> we only have one TV in the house and it has to hide when I'm in. And I, so I literally built a cabinet system where like it's on an elevator and just goes and goes down. Mm-hmm. And so now when you walk in our home, you can't see any television. You don't even think people don't even think we have a television. And it's those little things like that, that, okay, we're not centering the TV, which means we turn it on less. Psychology supports that 100%. How you shape your space will also shape how you behave and how you act. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all of that type of stuff really, really matters. Yeah, that's crazy, man. There's just so many pieces of the puzzle. That totally. You- I have to be aware of, at least, mm-hmm. you know, especially as a parent, yeah. like, as, as a responsible parent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but uh, moving into, like, the business side of this, yeah. um, talk to me about content creation in general. Mm-hmm. So just to kind of shift gears, talk to me about, you know, you've done YouTube, you've done yeah. podcasting, you've written several books at this point, you do public speaking. If somebody's out there right now, and, and we have a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to, yeah. this, to this show, if somebody's out there right now and they're like, okay... I have this message and I have this brand and I have this business and I want to amplify that. And I know that's creating some form of content totally. is probably the way to do that. Yeah. How would you recommend they get started? How would, I get, how would you get started? I would say, you know, totally that 10,000 hour rule of like, just get started. Like okay. you will, you are meant to, it usually takes about a decade to hone a craft of some sort. And even me having a viral video earlier, I'm now about almost at that 10 year realm and I can feel just finally a decent level of like proficiency. It's funny. I've just noticed last year or two, like I still need to grow a ton. Yeah. still need to work. But like, but like, I feel like I kind of fell in the pocket of like, yeah. okay, I got this. I know what I'm doing. I've done this before this, you know, think through this. I've gotten a little bit better. And it's just funny. It is like a f- eight to 10 year thing where that it takes that long. It's crazy. How many people I talk to now that, that say that, um, say that kind of stuff. My buddy Jordan Harbinger has a, a mm. podcast and gets like 6 million downloads a month. And I was talking to him the other day and I was just like asking him a few questions. Yeah. Just kind of just, I'm a podcaster, yes. a podcaster trying to like, you know, what, what can I expect? Totally. Here, you know? And he said something, a, ver- a, a yep. version of the same thing that like, he feels like the last two or three years has really been where his explosion of growth has yes. been in not only his numbers, but in his skill set, yes. his network and the people he brings on his show yep. and stuff. And we don't like that story though. Right. It takes that's a while, not the sexy story. To, yeah. yeah hey, totally. hey, to get to eight to 10 years and kind of like right. do something that no one really notices and then maybe it'll pop. No one loves that. Right. Yeah, but exactly. there's a lot of truth to that. But, and, but you know, what's ridiculous though, is that we look at eight to 10 years we go, man, that's forever. Yes. But then like the alternative is what? 
yeah, go just, work 40 years for somebody else yes, and retire? Or, and like or try to be entrepreneurial, but just bounce around every year or two because right. it's you, you want it to pop faster. Right. The other story yes. is way worse, like yes. markedly worse yeah, than, totally. than like just focusing totally. in and, and working on your craft for 10 yep. years. But it just I guess it just sounds so difficult or something totally. that it just makes people not want to do it. Well, here's, and, here's what I would say. Yeah, it, I agree. But also I think we need to get back to respecting the process. Do you know what I mean? Like yes. the process is is what matters that like the process itself of, of going forward of, of, of like, it's not about the end result. It's about what it's, what it's doing to us, the mm-hmm. process itself. So I think that's really important. So in terms of platform, if somebody's just starting out, which platform would you say like, Hey, you should go all in on this platform first and then start redistributing content. to other Good platforms? question. I think pay attention to what you're good at. First of all, cause I think it's different for each person. Like I'm, some people are not as good on video, right? So then try to make me, you know, parlay into audio. Someone, some people are not good at with their voice at all. Parlay into writing, you know, mm-hmm. blogs. And of course you should be distributing all across the board, but know which one you feel like is your breadwinner. Yeah. And then talking platform specific, um, I think like go where the eyeballs are. I think, you know, like I'm a huge fan of TikTok right now um, because I think that's totally here. Here's my favorite phrase. When anyone says, oh, that's just for teenagers, you should be on that immediately. Mm. Right. Not yeah. for creepy, weird reasons. <laughs> um, but like that, that is the phrase that totally dead give is a dead giveaway that this is the next big thing. Yeah. It happened with uh, YouTube. Then it happened with Instagram. Then it happened with Snapchat. And now it's happening with TikTok. Right. And that's exactly what people are saying. Oh, isn't that just a kid's app where they do fun, dumb stuff? Yeah. Yes. And you should be there. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I love it. And that's where like a lot of the creativity and content and stuff like that. So be on all the platforms. But just the eyeballs, the attention, all, when you hear that phrase, it's so cheap on those places, right? Yeah, you can break through thing. the noise so much more when, you, right. when you're in those spaces. Like literally, I know I have multiple friends, some with like zero platform, like that. they don't even care about the internet, and it's a couple hashtags all of a sudden got them 100,000 views on TikTok. That's yeah. on, you can't do that on Instagram. You can't yeah. do that on YouTube, right? Because it's so uh, booming, mm-hmm. and the saturation hasn't happened yet that it's just like kind of getting up there, getting early. Yeah, that's insane. So... Um, in terms of what's driven the most in your business, mm. what, what Good would question. you say has been like the biggest driver? Like, is it, a, yeah. is it a book? Probably. Is it... Yeah. I'd say probably books or YouTube. Yeah. Okay. That's probably what I would say compared to either social media in general, Instagram, Facebook, podcast, stuff like that. You have to know your own circle. You have to know your own funnel. Okay. Right. And so that's what I'm kind of back to that strength weakness thing. For me, I started on YouTube and I noticed, uh, you kind of have to name and claim each platform. Right. So for me, I almost consider YouTube my billboard. And that's a weird way to put it, but YouTube, YouTube is, in my opinion, for my stuff, because I make a lot of stuff, podcasts, books, et cetera. YouTube is the, the billboard, the first thing they might go, oh, who's, who's that? What's going on there? Who's that guy, right, on the side of the freeway? Um, usually that's YouTube for me, and it's not always YouTube for everyone. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's social media, um, you know, the other ones. Sometimes it's book writing, but I think you have to know what that is, and YouTube is that for me, and then book writing is just a really, really special way to take people really deep that none of the other platforms I do can. Mm-hmm. So those two combined, I would say, certainly have kind of helped uh, get it all where it is today. Do you find your books are mostly bought from warm audience, or do you find that like the book puts you in front of audiences? That's a really good question. I have no data to support that, so that would be a subjective answer. But I, if I had to guess, I would almost say a little bit of both. What you really need for a book to be successful is the core audience to take it strong and almost be like your super fans to go tell people about it. Mm-hmm. But a good book, in my opinion, is one of the most frontline grenade-like things you can do. Mm-hmm. And I think I almost see books as like grenades. Like they're big ideas. They take a lot of time, way more than podcasts and YouTube and stuff like that. So take a lot of time on it and then kind of throw that grenade out in culture, right? Yeah. Title it something that hopefully will start the conversation and get it going. And then in that case, it's not warm audience at all, but it's a, like a welcoming audience. You know what I mean? And yeah. so I think that's different. Yeah. 
which of your books has not necessarily been your favorite or whatever, but has like meant the most to you in terms of the content in the book itself? Nothing to do yes. with sales, audience. Totally. Like 100%, what meant 100% this one then, for okay. sure. Uh, and I think there's just some books that take on a personal nature more than the others. I love all my books. I think four now and six or seven self-published ones. But out of the traditional published ones, four of them now, definitely this one. I think... There's something about this one that just felt like this message got into my bones and it just got so deep in me that it felt like it just, it was the easiest book to write, but also the hardest, meaning I feel like it was the densest, deepest, kind of weirdest, like I just kind of make crazy connections and go all over, but it was the easiest because it really felt like it was in there. And so that feels really personal and really cool that like I had to have this whole journey and transformation first before I could talk about it, but definitely this one. So for somebody listening who's like, man, I've I've been wanting to write a book for a long time or I really want to write a book right now. Would you re- what, what would you recommend in terms of traditional publishing versus self-publishing and all that kind of stuff? I do both, and I, like, I recommend both. I think sometimes we say, here's the way I think about it. So like To Hell with the Hustle uh, is a very big idea book, meaning mm-hmm. like I, I spent years on that book. I'm trying to really distill a really strong concept, a really strong idea. So I like to argue if you want to write about a really big idea, I think it should go traditional publish. Okay. If you want to offer people a tool or a resource, then that tends to be self-published. That's how I tend to think about so it. So you got like a TED Talk book. Yeah, like that's yep. Or like I like so like so like half of my self-published books have like a bunch of space to write in. Does it make sense? Like yeah, it's a tool, like they're like a, a workbook. Yeah, so yeah, they're yeah. almost were either workbooky or just like a daily thing, or like they feel very practical, tactical tool. When I think kind of a uh, which hopefully a traditional public book sh- book should too, but uh, a lot more time and a lot more distilling of ideas. I think belongs there. Yeah, got it. So what's next, man? Like what what's the big things like that you got working on? Good Where question. do you see yourself five, ten years from now? Ooh, that I mean, it's so that question's so hard. Not because it's hard to dream, but it's hard to be like, man, if I count exactly five years back, there's no shot I would have felt like I was right here, right? <laughs> yeah, right. So I, you know, it's like it's kind of throwing it to the wind. But um, where do I see myself? So one of our main one of my main full time jobs is I also run an entire initiative called Family Teams, uh, which is basically like a online platform that has courses and books and live events, and it's just like its own little brand to kind of just equip families for health and flourishing and sustainability. And it's almost to hell with the hustle, like burning out and overwhelmed, but for families instead of individuals um, and giving people resources for that. And that's really where there's a lot, that's just resonating like crazy. That's growing like crazy more than a lot of stuff I've ever done. So I think I'll see myself just keeping doubling down there. Um, I really enjoy it the most. Um, And again, it's just part of what I do. It's not only, but uh, spending a lot more time there, growing that, seeing that get more successful, hopefully. Um, And yeah, continuing to write, um, and then from a life perspective, yeah, just hopefully in a really fun stage then in five or 10 years with the kids, more kids, I'm hoping by then, uh, married, still in Maui, hopefully that'd be awesome. Awesome. <laughs> so this is the build your network podcast. Mm-hmm. We talk a lot about networking relationships, yes. connections. Um, and this is something that it's, it's funny now when I have conversations with people. I always notice it sprinkled throughout the whole conversation. Yeah. Um, so even at the very beginning when we first started, yeah. I was going to bring it up then, but I wanted yeah. to wait till the end. Um, and you said you said something about how uh, the the biggest thing that helped you with the business side totally. of your just asking people your, yeah, yeah it was just like this guy gave yes. you this and this totally. other person offered this and this you totally. know you got around these other people that were doing yes. really well in these things and you started learning from them and then implementing right yeah. so um, just along those lines this is the question that I ask everybody um, to get the conversation rolling in this direction so Jeff do you believe that who you know or what you know is more important and why. Oof, I would say I would say who you know because it gives you what you know. Does okay. that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, I one hundred percent believe I am one hundred percent a product of 
Like literally, I, you can't conceptualize yourself without even the people that have impacted you or been around you. Right. And I even include that, by the way, too, to like books and stuff like that. People that have poured themselves out, but you might not never meet. Right. But, you know, their knowledge. Yeah, like that's, that's a, to, for me to think about all, because I love reading. Try to read somewhere around 100 books a year. I didn't get to it this year. I did it last year. But you start thinking like people you actually know, but then even like people that more are giving you that, you're not knowing them, but it's the same kind of thing of like learning from other people. Mm-hmm. Like you, you can, I can't even conceptualize what I'd be without all that stuff that's just blessed me over and over and over and over and over again. And then, yeah, going more personal to people that I do know really strongly. Yeah, I'm so a product man of just people that have poured into me and helped me and encouraged me. And that's actually, they say that, don't they? Don't they say you're like, you're basically just your five friends? Yeah, you're average some of, of the five people. Yeah, 100% percent. believe that. And then I think that that then that that gives you what you know, which is important. Right. I don't, you know, like I think that's actually step one, step two. Um, and so that's what I would totally. say for sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I mainly agree with everything that you yeah. just said. That, that, that's the biggest thing for me is that I find that if you spend a lot of time with the who, the what will increase in direct proportion totally. to the who that you bring around you. Totally. Whereas I don't really see the opposite being as true. Exactly. Like if you work so much on your what it's not necessarily going to exponentially increase the who, right? Yes. It, it might increase the who because yes. if you get really good at what you do, you're going to get attention from people, right? Totally. But it doesn't necessarily exponentially increase. Whereas if you go spend time with people who are two, three, four levels above yeah. you in whatever you're trying to accomplish, even if it's something silly like, hey, I just want to work on my golf game this year. Yes. Right? If you go golfing once a week with people who are worse than you, or you go golfing once a week, people who are, who are better yeah, than you. Yeah, exactly. At the end of the year, which person's going to be better? Yes, like, exactly. The person who went with the people better. Totally. Because you're just going to learn things by being around them, by totally. hanging out, by being a part of conversations. Totally. Like just being a fly on the wall and being like, oh, that's the level of conversation that these people are having. Totally. Is what enables you to start not only changing your actions, but changing your mindset yeah. to like do what you know you, you, what you used to think was impossible. Totally. And one thing I would add to that too is, like serve the people you're around. I think sometimes where that gets a little weird is when people kind of want to enter into these spaces with people that they really look up to and like, but then it's kind of just this take, 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 take mentality. Yeah. yeah. When it's like, no, no, you know, just, I, I don't, you'll, it's counterintuitive to the West. It's counterintuitive to like current culture. But like, I fully believe if you pour yourself out, if you serve other people, it actually like, you'll be fine. <laughs> 100%. You know, we say that that, you know, in our culture, the lie is that, like, if you do that, you'll get taken advantage of, you'll lose some things, you'll, you won't, you know, you need to watch mm-hmm. out for yours or kind of whatever, kind of elbow in places. Yeah. I totally believe if you just serve, offer people value, is kind of the phrase they're using on the internet now, but I think that's just really a phrase for, like, serving people and loving people well. It just, it takes care of itself. Yeah, one of my favorite books on that is Give and Take by Adam Grant. If yeah, you, if you he's have, amazing. I yeah, love him. If, if you have not read yeah. it, listen to this right he's now. He's, like, one of my favorite people. Books, podcasts, yeah. all his stuff is brilliant. Gotta check that book yeah. out, because it, it's it goes into exactly what we're just talking yes. about. He basically breaks down that there's givers, takers, and matchers. Yes. Givers, obviously, yeah. we know who they people are. Takers, give. same. Matchers are people who give only when they know they're going to get an yes. equal amount of value yeah, back. back. Yeah. So they break down and do a ton of studies. And you know Adam, he's yeah. a you know, fantastic he author. He's connecting the crazy professor. dots with the studies. Yeah, and yeah he's yeah. got stats on stats yep. on stats. And he puts it together basically this whole study yes. that said they followed around givers, takers, and matchers and like put them on the success ladder. Like where yes. do you end up? And the givers are always at the top. The givers are it's at crazy. the top. The givers are also at the bottom. Yes. So what's interesting <laughs> is like figuring out so he goes into that book like yes. okay if you're a giver you you will end up at the top yeah. if you put a couple of these like different caveats into the yes. way that you, you still need to be, you still need to be smart right wise so totally i love and that and changing up and one of the big things that was that was really interesting for me to read uh because i, I think i'm naturally more of a matcher yeah um and after reading that book and then having a show on networking and totally. relationships i've trained myself to become a giver yes. and just give without expectation yes. right 
So one of the things that I had uh, trouble wrapping my mind around was like, okay, well, how do I make sure I'm not one of the givers that ends up at the bottom because people take yes. advantage of me all the time? Yep. And one of the big things was he said, don't feel bad about changing up your reciprocity style mm. with a taker. Yes. So if you like interact with somebody and you realize that they're just like taking, 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 taking yeah. you can't just continue to give to that give, person. Yes. You have to like yes. switch Cut the cycle. to a matcher. Yes. So it's it's funny. I've seen it play out in my life now several times where people have been like, take, 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 and I offer a ton of value and I'm trying to build a relationship. Yeah. There's never any reciprocity yes. and they're just a taker. And then eventually, like the next time they ask me for something, I cut it off and I'm just like, sorry, like, I, you know, I'm too busy or I can't do that right yes. now. And then I they just that. kind of, Go do their own thing. And yeah. it's just like, okay, well, like, um, I, I had to switch it at yes. this point, but I had to be helps, okay with it. It kind of helps reveal true colors. Totally. And it helps also cut off the cycle that's not helpful. I love yeah, that. 100%. Um, so, real quick, we're coming up to the end here. Um, tell me a story, something that we haven't talked about yet, a, a quick story about maybe a time in your life where uh, a relationship with somebody led to a big moment of you know success or mm. clarity or fulfillment. Something that you feel like you can directly attribute to a relationship that you had in your life. It kind of goes back to what I alluded to earlier of with people bringing surrounding people around, you know, even like, and it, and it gets all the way down to the books. Like, I don't think I would have a book deal. I don't think I'd be doing a lot of this stuff if it wasn't for a couple of men and different reasons, but I specifically now I'm thinking of the book. Um, there was almost like this fatherly like grandfather. And here's what happened. So, so the, I had a mentor in my life, right? And one of his really good friends, he was in his wedding uh, 40 years ago or whatever, uh, is a really high powered uh, literary agent. Mm. And so when everything went viral, you know, he basically said, hey, I, like, I just think you should talk to my friend, you know, and he can help you out. And that connection literally led to almost like the entire like success and business side of just being more than a guy with three videos, you know? And through that literally led to my first book deal, which did pretty decent, and then that led to the next one and all that type of stuff. So. Um, that it's crazy when you can trace the dots that what's the word obvious yeah. you know what I mean like that one relationship and it wasn't and back to even arts with the give and taking I wasn't trying to take anything from him he was just more like a father figure in my life um, and he just then and so then when it happened he didn't just reach out for help so we were already in relationship so that shows you too by the way be in relationship when you don't need something mm. you know what I mean like it's like Take we, we, we sometimes wouldn't want to yeah. be in that relationship till we need something right I was like no it's just like it was more of a real relationship with no business no nothing and then something happened he goes oh and I didn't even know he knew this guy you know he's like oh I know this guy not even know this guy he's like a really good friend so yeah. then it led to a meeting that led to everything else so it's crazy yeah that's the biggest thing you hit the nail right on the head was saying like it's a real relationship yes so people have a tendency to segment their relationship building yes. and they're like networking with business people is in this yes. box over and it's like, here no networking is your life friendships is over here yes. you know what i mean it's like no it's yeah. all the it's same it's all the same i love yeah. that totally i love that well look man i know we could keep talking forever and ever if i don't cut this off no, so I'm let's gay. go ahead and move on to the last segment here something i like to call the random round just a few quick random questions oh, quick i love this stuff let's answers. do it let's do it what profession other than your own do you think that it would be fun to attempt Oh, I, I, I mean, I would be, if it doesn't matter if you'd be horrid at it, I would love to do like music. Perfect. Yes. Yeah. If you could sit on a park bench with someone past or present and chat for an hour, who would it be and why? Oh, that was, uh, um, oh man, I was like, what genre do I go with? Um, I'm going, my brain's going all through. I mean, someone like Malcolm Gladwell or something like that would be fun. Mm. Yeah. How do you like to consume content? Books, audiobooks, blogs, podcasts? Books, 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 books. Okay, mm -hmm. what's what's a book that's kind of overarching, entrepreneurial that you would recommend Culture to Code. the audience? Love that book. It's actually my favorite parenting book, but it's not a parenting book at all. It's an entrepreneurial leadership biz, you know, business book, How Do You Create Culture, um, but it has probably been my favorite parenting book. Give us a glimpse of your morning routine. Morning routine, wake up at four usually, which, by the way, caveat, I go to bed at eight, so, because I'm not this hustle grinder. I, I get eight hours of sleep. 
Um, I just wake, I wake up that early because it's my best content creation. I write the best when I do that. Um, it was one of those things that started at six, then I backed it up to five, backed it up to four because of how much I was loving it. Right. right. Um, and I've been doing that for a couple of years now where it's just like I write better, I think better, I read, I don't turn on my phone. I just, it's so quiet. It's so amazing before everything else gets going. But you got to go to bed pretty early to do that, and especially with kids. But yeah, that's really what it is. It's just waking up early. And if it's a book season, I write. So it's more of a, if it's a, if it's a crazy season, it's an output. If it's a chill season, it's an input. Meaning like I'll just kind of read and hang mm. out and think, and then that's it. And then six o'clock, I'm usually I probably will do that till about seven. Uh, and then me and Alyssa will kind of talk. My wife talk for a few minutes, catch up on the day, and then our kids get going and breakfast at eight. What is your go-to pump-up song? This is not it at all, but it's stuck in my head because I just watched a parody of it. But it's like, what is that? The that girl one where it's like fight song, like this. Oh is my yeah, fight song. that is actually so pretty solid. My buddy man. Trey Kennedy, he's hilarious. He has millions of followers on Instagram. He does like comedy bits, and he just did this hilarious parody called "This Is My Fall Song," and he's pretending to be like a white girl, uh, like the, uh, representing fall pumpkin spice latte and all that stuff. So <laughs> people need to go watch that. But that's, but it pumped me up. I was like, that's awesome. What is something putting business aside, yeah. authorship, like all this stuff, like putting all this stuff aside? What's something just in general in life that you're just like not very good at at all not very good at um i'm not very good at managing people that's a, yeah so i try to stay away from that when i can I really? try to, yeah try to be very solopreneur try to okay. be or be in partnership with people that are really good yeah. at that so because we do have organizations and things that we got staff and employees and all that but uh yeah want to grow at it but then also have systems in place right now where it's i need to get better first you yeah, know? yeah so as we wrap everything up here jeff what's one place online where we're gonna be able to find you the most uh anywhere and everywhere you can just search jefferson bethke it's the handle on all the stuff uh or jeff and is our website and then yeah all the books are on anywhere books are sold sweet so Jefferson Bethke, uh, just give it a quick search and you will uh, be busy for hours and hours with all the content and stuff that's out there. Um, And then definitely go pick up a copy of his new book, To Hell with the Hustle. Um, I can guarantee you, especially if you're listening to this podcast, that you need to hear (laughs) what he has to say um, in this book. So, uh, Jeff, thanks so much for coming to the show today, my man. had a fantastic time with you. Dude, thanks, man. That was awesome. Well, that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. As most of you know, I talk a lot about giving value to others. This podcast is one of the ways that I do that since all the content from the show is totally 100% for free. And when people ask me how they can add value to me, one of the ways I tell them is to head over to iTunes, hit the subscribe button, and leave a rating and review. This not only gives me valuable feedback on what you think about the show, but it also helps me with Apple's algorithm. So please, 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 if you have not done that yet, head over to iTunes, leave a rating and review for the show. It adds tremendous value and it only takes a minute or two of your time. Have a wonderful rest of your day and remember to leave every relationship better than you found it.